Welcome to Payne on Politics, a podcast where host Dr. Gregory Payne of Emerson College sits down with fellow experts to discuss the current state of politics, public opinion, and global affairs. In a world growing increasingly complex, communication and critical thinking is key. This only makes the Emerson motto, expression necessary to evolution, more true. Hello, I'm Gregory Payne, the Chair of Communication Studies, Co-Director of the Emerson Blancarina Global Center, and I'm very excited to be here today with one of my favorite students and alums and advocates for Emerson College in the department, and that is Danelle Tomasella. Welcome to Paint on Politics, Danelle. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, and I must say that years ago I thought of this moment happening, a time when we would sit down and talk about Emerson and our experiences at 21 Com Ave, the legacy campus, and the whole vibe of Back Bay at that time. So this is really um, uh, quite, a, quite an honor and a pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Payne, for having me. Well, you know, it's exciting that you say that because uh, I just had a student in Theo who's doing an entire documentary on the magic and charisma of President Kennedy. And he went over with Shepard, myself, and others, Dr. Silvestri, when we led the first legacy campus tour a couple of years ago. And he said he was so impressed by that from your perspective, having been over at the Legacy Campus, what, what is different? What was, it, what was the presence like in terms of studying over there at Commonwealth? One of the things that, is, uh, uh, that stood out to me and still does, and by the way, let me backtrack a little bit. In preparation for our speaking, I, I was sitting in you know, my living room and reminiscing about what it was like, and I thought to myself at the end, both being a student and a professor for all those years, it was even more wonderful than I remember and because I, I didn't want to get into um, coming in today and, and saying something to make it sound that it was just so glamorous, but it was just that wonderful back then. Um, being a student, it was that your question at Emerson yes, during that time? Yeah, what it was like. You were my first professor in my, uh, for my debate class. Being a student, one of the things that um, is the main bullet point for me is the ability to take a class and then that evening perhaps go and apply what I learned. And yes. I'll be very quick. I took your speech writing course. Then I would go to Beacon Hill and write speeches for politicians. Yes. Or there was a performance for television class and I was on air. Okay. Or there was a public relations and marketing class and when I had my own business I would apply those skills that I learned that day. Let's turn that around as a professor. I also had my classes run that way where I was constantly telling my students take what you've learned and run with it. Take that and go and apply it now. So that was it um, for me as far as one of the main takeaways as a student. Yes, I think what happened, and this is something that I think was a part of the, the excitement, the golden era, was you had four communication classes. As, as I said, very, very proud. Lady Oratory expresses it sort of back to the legacy. You had the public speaking class, which we still have today. Yes. We had voice and articulation, which again, Fran Lashoto taught President Kennedy. David Brinkley, many of people know, was the correspondent who dated a girl from Emerson so he could get the V&A classes. You had, in addition to that, oral interpretation of literature, and then you would also have the debate class. So you had four essential classes that you had to take. Emerson now only is back to one, but what I would say is I think we're swinging back to an appreciation of all those four, and my hope is that we'll be able to have 
some of those again as a foundation because those have been very, very important for you as well as others who have had success after graduation. Yes, indeed. And you brought to mind, um, we had the students prior to Wired. Yes. And one of the most, you know, the fond memory I have is is coming from those internships and coming from my uh, work on site companies with my own um, clients, rushing to 21 Calm Ave, going up the stairs, and this is the early, early 90s, and hearing the click of the first Macintosh keyboards coming from Diego and Dr. Payne's office. And these are memorable moments when we weren't wired. And so in the classroom, without the cell phones out, without the technology, when you had the critical thinking and debate classes, when you had individuals like myself that would plank themselves right, if that's the word there, put themselves right in the middle of the classroom, surrounded by students, yes. and we goodness knows, we know how Emersonians love to talk, without that technology, those classes were rocking. Yes. I think the one thing to, to point out, because you've reminded me of some first, the first computer at Emerson was at 21 Commonwealth. We had the first uh, we had the first internet-covered type of conference with the Kent State Jackson State Conference. Diego scotch-taped the wire with Wayne Jack, you probably remember Wayne Jack, up to the second floor. We got no support from anyone else, and I remember the there was a marketing professor who said to me, why are you messing with the internet? there is no future for marketing or advertising or communication with the internet. So some people are arguing the wrong case, but getting back to it, what do you think was that magic? As you walk into 21 Commonwealth, you might remember we had the virtual fireplace. Yes, I do. Where we had you know, a tape and that was yes. the fire because they wouldn't let us put the fire in there. Uh, it was, in some respects, it had no limits in terms of creativity. Oh, you have tapped into something that was on my mind last night where there was a zeitgeist, not within, not so much within um, the entire campus, but I felt it uh, at 21, um, that anything could be done. And I was overwhelmed with the possibilities because what ended up happening was with the other colleges I was accepted at, there's one thing that they didn't have, and, and you can speak to this, is that you could practically design your own major and you could bring in other elements or other courses or even speak with you one-on-one -on -one and create the type of, not course, but internship or meeting with you one-on-one -on -one to earn credits that absolutely tied in to your career goals. Yeah, I, think I remember that and I remember, of course, Emerson polling now with Spencer Kimball, one of America's favorite pollsters. Yes. We began that with David Paleologos, who's now over at Suffolk and mm -hmm. does a wonderful poll over there. but. Again, plugging into the Emerson Mafia, if you remember, we had various people, uh, Ken, uh, uh, not Ken Grout, it was, uh, of course, uh, my, the other Ken that I just mentioned this mm -hmm. morning, Ken yes. Swope, who was yes. doing political consulting. Yes. Uh, I remember Jack Walsh. Yes. But one of the favorites, I think, and it comes from the hinterland, James Golden, who was at Ohio State University, was actually a friend of Alan Koenig, who was the president at the time. And he said, would you like to have this visiting scholar? You had Professor Golden, who was a life-changing teacher. What, was, what do you remember most? Well, I still have his book, yes. The Rhetoric of Western Thought. Yes. And given all of my life's experiences and my being a professor myself, that's my go-to time and time again. Because don't forget, I came from, from studying Christian apologetics to 
Aristotelian yes. when I came here. Quite a change. And, and that, yes, indeed. And so that was the text. And Dr. Golden in the class was a very gracious, classy human being. Um, and uh, his, his ability to um, discuss uh, a, a topic that even back then and we, was perhaps controversial and bring everyone together to have a dialogue about that topic um, was just a, a gift to the class. I think what was great about Dr. Golden, and he's someone that many people, Jane and others remember, David Calusian, was I knew his politics, but he never brought his politics into the classroom. It was always critical thinking. He would bring out the best. He always encouraged both sides. So a real appreciation of diverse points of view. Secondly, he was my example. In my years at Emerson College, I would have students come up to me, come on, Mama T, Danelle, we can't figure you out. And I said, you know, they would, oh, where, where do you stand politically? Are you this? Are you that? And I said, no, that's, that's not, that's, that's for me to, you know, we're not going to discuss that in class. And they were always intrigued by that. Um, and I got that example from him. But I have a segue here that's yes. really important for me. Um, to hear your feedback about in that a lot of programs, events, and um, visiting professors came to Calm Studies, and I'd like to go through some of those beginnings. Here, I've got just a few. We have Kent State. Yes. We have um, the LA program. I'd like to talk a little bit about the LA program, and today I brought with me yes. <laughs> something I asked you for a month ago, and that was your original, if you will, pitch about the LA program to the folks at Emerson at that time, Yes. and it reads like, what is the LA campus today, and what it has to offer? Well, I think this does kind of factualize the fact that back uh, in December of 85, uh, we proposed taking a group of students out, not for a visit, but for a semester. This was to Chris Weir, Continuing Education is where it started. And we basically talked about that it had been run by uh, the dean at the time, uh, Jackie Lieber got, it was also John Zachris, and everyone bought into it. So you're right, the LA program of today, the roots of it in terms of first semester, was in communication studies with Mayor Tom Bradley. Uh, and I think that's, that's exciting to have seen that type of a seed that began at 21 Commonwealth. And wasn't your sister involved with the program in this yes. development? Yes, she was involved because she was out there at the time and she basically said, I think what we can do is really tie in Emerson internships. Uh, being very honest, George Quinzel, who was head of mass communication, Carol O'Neill, who I think is now down at, uh, in North Carolina teaching. All of us worked together again. There were, no, there were no walls. We worked together to put this together. And George and Carol took people out during the summer. But my idea, my big adventure was to let's do this as a semester program. Mm -hmm. So we started it. She was the internship coordinator. We launched it at Oakwood. That's where it was until we moved to the LA Center. But I think if you ever get quizzed on Jeopardy, where did the LA program begin? I think there's a popular conception that it began much later, but you know, that's fake news. It began in comm studies, it began in 85 with the Bradley campaign, and we're so proud that we're more or less trying to refurbish it with a lot of political comm, sports comm, and comm studies majors in the years ahead. Wonderful, okay. All right, that, that was um, the snapshot that I was hoping for. Now, I know, Danelle, when we talked, you also said you remembered someone else behind me. 
And that is the father of public relations, Ed Bernays. Yes. He would come every year for his birthday. What yes. do you remember about Ed Bernays? I took his PR lectures, <laughs> and we talked about his historic stamp yes. as far as public relations and, and some of the, uh, you know, how it would relate to what was happening at that time in yes. the 90s. And I found him very relevant. Um, and he just uh, had the type of... Um, uh, presence that when he stepped into the classroom you had to pinch yourself because here he is this is this is the man that got it going right. the whole concept right i think uh, you mentioned something too that reverberates well today and that we just had john philo uh, and we've got some pictures, of course, with John. Mm -hmm. uh, we just had John Philo on campus for another retrospective of Kent State, Jackson State. But I know you were there when we brought back Mary Vecchio, who yes. was the young woman over the body of Jeff Miller yes. here on the wall. And she met for the first time John Philo. John had taken the picture. They'd never gotten together. So 21 was a magical place. And we had 35 international PR people from Germany and other places taking that. What was it like as a student to see that type of reunion through communication? For me it was emotional and I'll tell you why uh, because as, um, um, during that time when that happened I was home with my mother. My dad was working at the fire station and it was like a lot in a sense a loss of innocence yes. that happened. And then the narrative started coming out and around our area where I grew up in Waltham. Well, if the students weren't protesting, and it was very um, emotional time. Mm -hmm. For me, it brought clarity to what happened. Of course, I had heard you in class beforehand, but you were the first person, Dr. Payne, that gave me that clarity I needed. So you really thought the students who were killed probably were protesters who kind of deserved what they got. That was the, if you will, again, that was the narrative yes. in, in my growing up. Now, understanding Waltham at that time was Kennedy and Catholic. Right, right. And it was um, Italian and Irish and what have you. It wasn't the the, the Waltham that we know of today, uh, which is wonderful. Uh, but uh, that did um, help me um, with the reality of, okay, these were the emotions at that time, but this is what happened. Yes. And yes. why. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So part of that, as you said, was we grew those programs, whether it be LA, we brought in people. You mentioned the, kind of the exciting aspect of being over there. You, you mentioned earlier the fact that you're in a, a campus that almost looks like it's a part of a movie backdrop. It did, and Of yes. course, we had movies that were shot nearby. Yes, we did. We did because what happened is I was at 21 Com Ave, and I lived for 10 years at 287 Com Ave. Yes. And so what would happen is I would teach a course, or before then, you know, go to a course, and then I would be working in Boston during the day. So I happened across news as it was happening with the reporters, or there was a movie being filmed called The Firm, the Firm in Copley very, Square, yes, yes. or you would go over to Harvard for Goodwill Hunting. Yes. Okay, a number of movies, and then you had dignitaries coming to town, um, and then you had a situation where you have celebrities and actors. I was um, going through a turnstile like with the Four Seasons, and I realized, oh, that's Nelson Mandela, <laughs> and oh, that's Rosalind Carter. I yes. mean, it just went yes. on and on. And so that's where the movie backdrop came from. And I say to folks when they say, Danelle, when you reflect back on that time, I mentioned to them two words, pinch me. Yes. Because it really was as wonderful as I now see it. Right. And a special time. 
You know, as I look at you, I look over here to the right, and there's a picture outside of 21 Commonwealth where we had the barbecues. Yes. So we would have barbecues. I, I of course, can see Bill Hemmer and some other people. When I look over here, though, uh, you probably remember when we had Arnon Milchan, who did the uh, JFK film. Yes. Uh, which was premiered. He, of course, came to 21 Commonwealth. Mm -hmm. And Helen Rose, of course, was someone, when you think of Helen Rose, many people today nor because of her generosity. Yes. How would you describe Helen Rose as a friend of the college and the department? Oh, a gracious woman. And um, just a delight to talk to. I remember the pink room downstairs. Yes. And uh, lectured in that room. And um, just many fond memories. Right. Of well, you know, if... if uh, you know, if we're really giving the facts, she and Cecil were the ones who found 21 Commonwealth, and they told Alan, we should purchase that. And if you remember, that's the only building that's not on Beacon Street. But we bought that building. We turned quite a profit when they sold it. And Helen was someone who earlier in the 50s had saved the college. It was going bankrupt. She reached out and said, no, we're going to have an alumni group. She began, of course, the speech and hearing science. She was the person who went down into D.C. and advocated for sign language. Massachusetts became the first state in the country to teach sign language. So many years before Women's Lib, Helen Rose was changing things. And I think as we remember, 21, she gave us money for the Helen Rose Room. And then suddenly she came to me and she said, you know, Gregory, I want to work with you to give not just rooms, but I want to give to generations the opportunities to go and study. So she was the one who said, I think you've got a young man from Spain who wants to potentially talk to you about a trip to the Olympics. And then she went with us to Atlanta. So I think Helen is someone that represents that vitality of the Jim Golden and the spirit of that legacy campus. Indeed. Yes. I, I would agree with you that, that she did. And as you were talking, um, I mean, there's so much to, to say. We couldn't, we couldn't fit it in today, but we'll do our best, is that um, Emerson also became the place that reporters liked to come to for political events. And, and we were on the news, you were on the news, and, uh, and, I, and I thought that was really exciting. And then from there, it was interesting how other campuses saw, oh my goodness, look at the attention Emerson's getting. Right. And it, would, it just kind of right. started at Northeastern and then and other college campuses in the Boston area. I think, you know, I think you're right. I mean, one of the things that was exciting was, again, like we have today, to work with people like Paul Erickson, to work with people like John Marlier, to have people like Ken, Lish, Ken uh, Cornell, Fran Lashoto, Bernie McPherson, Dr. Silvestri. And then to be there, as you said, again, on the wall over there, uh, when you had, of course, Kent State, but then also when JFK Jr. Uh, had his tragic accident, because I had done some work and work and research on the Kennedys, I remember being with uh, you know, Channel 5 as we were hoping for that kind of miracle. We would find him at sea, just like PT-109, but unfortunately I did not. So we had, uh, thanks again to Helen, we had uh, the JFK tragedy looking at the news media, of course, later it was Princess Diana. We became a place where we tried to figure out what is the rhetorical phenomenon that captures us in something that now has become almost commonplace, and that is celebrity spectacle. Yes. Uh, we were the first to really examine that. I recall those seeds being planted, and I recall how your interaction 
with these individuals and the media help to excel that? Well, I think one thing that I liked about it was, as you said, it was a place where people could come and disagree. Yes. Uh, Judy Kletter, uh, who we were talking about the docudramas and the problems of docudramas, uh, are they documentaries or are they dramas? Because there's dramatic license and really came down to the fact that we have these mediated realities and what, what is creative and what's actually historical. Mm -hmm. That was an essence. To, what, what do you remember about taking away understanding through critical thinking of what we see on TV? Just us to step back because I came in with my own bias and just the differentiation um, and, uh, and the ability to step back and take a look at this through that lens yes. of the mediated realities. I still have that book at home also yes. by the author. It skips my mind right now. But that's not going away anytime soon. Yes. No. If anything, it's on steroids. Right, right, and especially And now today. we have to be distinguishing between where are we going to go for our news sources and what data are we going to look for? What are we going to do to dig even deeper? So, um, so the misinformation, disinformation dilemma. Yes, indeed. Yeah. What do you think, Danielle? I remember, again, one episode that I think I remember very clearly because sometimes you and I would be on an opposite side of an issue. But Madonna had a song, if you remember, Like a Prayer. Yes. Remember that song? I do. And this was a song where it was making a statement. Mm -hmm. And you had you came with a very strong religious faith, and you know I was arguing from a rhetorical perspective, and Miss and Dr. Golden was in the middle, basically saying, "Okay, let's take bits and pieces here." I remember that. I remember that. It the was very that. spirited, and yes. you and I had a different opinion on it, and I think both of us became more appreciative of the other side. Yes. One thing I would ask you: when you think of where we are today, mm -hmm. where uh, we talk about. The, in, the inability to really talk and discuss issues. Mm -hmm. What do you think some of the lessons are of that era that could help us today get into a situation where we do honor free speech, we respect people's points of view, but we also look at the university as one where we should air different versions and different ideas? Oh, Dr. Payne, um, I have to step back and say, first and foremost, before going into that, um, let's create the class, uh, put your cell phones away, folks, and but and then we've got to, we we have to we have to in a sense ask students to clear their minds of what perceptions they're walking in the door with. Um, we are at a, a unique time and place right now where it could go either way. We still have the opportunity through the college and universities to take hold of what has spun out of control and bring it back to a place where we can have those types of discussions where, you know what, um, I'm a Christian, I'm pro-life, which I am, okay, and you are you are an atheist and you are... Which I'm not. Um, but, yes. Not you, but I mean as far as uh, having the discussion with yes. the person and you have these other political views, can we please sit down and discuss this, put the cell phones aside and talk about our differences without pulling out, my goodness gracious, um, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just the, the, uh, the ad hominem attacks. Right. It, it's, it starts out on that. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, in other words, I'm being too verbose about this, that there's going to be a, um, a place, and there, not going to be, there is a place right now for colleges and universities to say, you know what, folks, we need to get back to that. Right. 
if we're going to move forward, we need to get back to that because so this is where we're at right now back, because of social media. You basically say getting back to, to being able to explore various arguments, finding exactly. strengths, etc. Exactly. It's my understanding that there are some college classrooms, I'm not mentioning this, but, uh, but just um, seeing the things I've seen on YouTube, where you can't even mention the name of our former president. Right. Or there are other debates that you can't even have mm -hmm. without there being um, emotional duress in the classroom. Yes, yes. And that shouldn't be. Right, right. Well, I think we do have uh, very interesting times, and I think what we're attempting to do, especially at Emerson, is to remember the roots and remember the function and remember the scope of what we teach. Exactly. We have a new president. You know that... Uh, I'm very enthusiastic. He is the first, to me, focused communication president since John Zachris. comes with that, that tradition of, mm -hmm. of Emerson and Southwick and others. Uh, I know that you haven't met with him yet. What advice would you give uh, President Bernhardt? Oh, my goodness, if I were sitting across from him? Which I think you will be. He loves to talk to alums. Oh, my. Uh, that, we would have to have that dialogue about... Emerson in the 90s and how we had that type of give and take in the classroom, how students benefited from it, Yes. and uh, and we need to get back to that. Right. Would he consider being that beacon among college presidents to say, we need to do this, folks? So you're basically saying that Emerson for many years, many generations since the beginning has led the way with regard to having communication as the foundation and you would say, let's continue to burnish that. Exactly. That's why I chose Emerson. There were a number of colleges I could have gone to, um, very nice colleges I was accepted into, but I chose Emerson specifically because of what was happening here, Dr. Payne. And it happened. It happened for me as a student, with you as my professor, and I want to thank you right now for giving me that first opportunity to, to teach in your class and, to, and then have my own class, Women in Politics, in 1995. I think that was one of the first times we taught the course. Indeed, and I want to thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Janelle, and as I said, I think that uh, anyone who would like to find out about the Legacy Campus and also the foundation of what makes Emerson unique I would invite all that Emerson Mafia watching this to connect with you. And I know that the president, as well as others, are excited to have you back in terms of conversation. You're always welcome in communication studies, Thank which you we very say much. is the first department, and we continue to try to enrich the tradition. Thank, Thank you. you so much for coming home. Thank you very much, Dr. Payne. This means a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And we'll see you again for another edition of Payne on Politics.